0: Hello. This is Bridget. Terry and I will be starting research and interviews for the 14th season of this podcast. Since so many people who have never before experienced prolonged periods of stress, anxiety, or depression may be doing so now, we are reposting this episode with a therapist who has treated thousands of patients with depression and found them to be the strongest and most resilient people that he knows. Now, that's a perspective we don't hear very much, and one that we find really validating and informative. We invite you to join us. Please come to the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page for daily posts, information, and support. It's another way that we can all stay connected while physically distancing. You are not alone. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Terry. We recently posted a question on our Giving Voice to Depression community Facebook page asking members to finish this sentence. Depression is, and we left a blank. And we got the kind of insightful feedback that we've come to expect from this great group. Mm -hmm. They said depression is dark, wicked, relentless, real, stigmatized, a nightmare, a roller coaster, a sneaky, evil shapeshifter that smothers you, feeling alone in a room full of people, Mm -hmm. a bottomless pit. But also
1: replies including depression is a very powerful teacher, a strong nudge to ask for help, the turning point to a better life, and a favorite depression is not going to win. Not going to win. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Today's guest, Dr. Tim Cantifer, says his more than 30 years' experience as a psychiatrist treating patients with depression has led him to conclude that depression is the curse of the strong. Yeah, you heard it right. Mm -hmm. Strong, not the weak. It's the name of his book. And well, after we read it, we reached out.
1: Thank you for joining us, Doctor. We are always interested in exploring different perspectives on depression. And yours is both unique and refreshing.
2: It's always been interesting to me that it is kind of unique, because whenever you go to conferences or whatever on depression, you get people talking about vulnerability factors. And it was a long time ago that I thought, well, hang on a second, um, you call them vulnerability factors, that, which makes sufferers sound like sort of um, feeble, whimpering people. But my experience has been completely the opposite. And if you reframe those same factors in, in a different way, they're actually strengths. It was always a pleasure in my career, I've retired now, to treat people with major depression, because they seem to me to be, the, you know, the best and the nicest people, and, uh, you know, deserving of so much more than they were getting and deserving of a very different attitude from um, people around them.
1: Dr. Cantifer says in his practice, the common traits of the people with depression he treated became so predictable, he would surprise new patients when he interviewed them.
2: I I, I say to to folks, look, don't tell me what you're like. Um, I'll tell you. You're regarded by those around you as strong, reliable, diligent, with a strong conscience, strong sense of responsibility. You tend to look after other people's needs before your own. You're sensitive. Vulnerable to criticism and your self-esteem is pretty easy to knock. Um, and it depends a lot on the evaluation of others. And they go, oh, golly, yes. How, how did you know that? Well, I, I know that because I've seen that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over.
1: In fact, Dr. Cantifer
2: goes further,
1: saying we're the kind of people to whom you'd turn if you had a problem upon which your house depended.
2: Yes, absolutely. I've sometimes said this as a joke, but it's not really a joke. If I were employing somebody for an important job, and if I were allowed to, I, I would say in the advertisement for the job, only those who've had at least one episode of major depression need apply. Because, of course, then you're going to get the very best people who are going to try their guts out for you because they're the people who get the illness.
1: So there's the part of me that loves to hear this because I have depression and I hate there are people out there who consider those of us with it weak when that is not how I feel. Uh, But there's also the part of me that hears this a little bit like when you're not invited to the high school dance and your mother says, oh, honey, that's because you're so special. And you think, no, it's (laughs) not. So is this this a like pacifying or uh, uh, placating those of us with depression or this is your clinical scientific doctor psychiatrist?
2: No, this is my, uh, this is my uh, passionately held view. You know, I don't see any harm in putting a positive value on those characteristics, which I personally feel positive about. It's not a question of just making people feel better. It's about enabling people to change the way that they lead their lives, really taking charge of their lives in a way that's going to make their lives better.
1: And that shift in perspective can be literally life-saving.
2: While people are seeing it as being some awful weakness and and shame, they're very unlikely to present themselves for the treatment which is likely to, to, to help them. So I think it's more than just a soothing balm. This is incredibly important in my view.
1: Before we continue, there's a distinction Dr. Cantifer wants to make clear.
2: Clinical depression, major depression, is a spectrum. And, you know, there are some folks who have what uh, I, I would call the unipolar version of bipolar disorder. There are some people for whom, you know, my model does not fit and at its extreme, that really is genetically inherited and a biological illness. The, the type that really interests me, um, and is what I'm writing about in this book, is major depression caused clearly by stressors. And to me, that's the, the the majority of what I saw. And Dr. Cantifer saw a lot
1: of patients with depression, far more than the average psychiatrist.
2: And I have actually done a a rough calculation on that, and it's around 3,000.
1: And the majority of those patients, he says, were unable to look after themselves in those stressful times because their focus was elsewhere.
2: Which is, I saw um, literally thousands of these folks who were focusing so much on the needs of others, who were ignoring their own needs and feelings so much that you could see that they were, in a way, bound to develop this illness. The curse of the strong,
1: remember? Quoting from his book now, Think about it. Give a set of stressors to someone who's weak, cynical, or lazy, and he'll quickly give up, so he never gets stressed out enough to get ill. A strong person, on the other hand, will react to those pressures by trying to overcome them. After all, she's overcome every challenge she's faced in the past through diligence and effort. She can't stop struggling, because she fears other people might be disappointed in her. Even more, she fears being disappointed in herself. She keeps going on and on and on until suddenly, bang, the fuse blows. I want to be clear, those pronouns were the doctor's choices and not mine, by the way, not my feminism creeping in.
2: The fuse may blow just because you have impossible hardship in your life. But the fuse may blow because you face the hardship which you do without sufficiently taking account of your own needs because you're so busy looking after everybody else's. And that's the type that I'm particularly interested in. It's very common.
1: And you say in your book that blowing a fuse is not a metaphor.
2: No, it's not. There's very good evidence for this that when you look at the functioning in the limbic areas of the brain, there is a chemical disturbance which happens. Now, I know that there are some people who would say, "Oh, this is a um, you know a myth created by drug companies in order to sell their drugs," but but it isn't. If you take people with major depression and look at the metabolites of the major transmitter chemicals in the limbic um, system of the brain, they they are reduced. I don't know what you would call it, but I would call that a blown fuse.
1: To avoid that and to reduce the likelihood of future blown fuses, Cantiver says we need to learn a different way of facing adversity.
2: The the sorts of changes that you can make to the way that you think and the way that you behave through effective cognitive therapy, mindfulness, or, you know, really looking at the way that you run your life, they're incredibly important too and can increase your chances of remaining well. So, I mean, I I think if you want to put it down to its most simple, you can reduce it to three questions. What's it all for? You know, what I do in my life. Um, What do I want? Where is the balance in my life? And I don't mean just work-life balance. I mean the balance between your needs and other people's needs, the balance between rest and recreation, the balance between exercise and just blobbing in front of the television. Everything is about balance. Now, if you can really answer those three questions, you've got a very good chance of remaining well. But my experience is that most people who get a current episode of major depression can't answer those questions. They've never thought about their own needs or what they want because they're too busy running around, making other people happy. And that, he says,
1: is very often a function of low self-esteem.
2: Many of my patients have, for one reason or another, not learnt by the time that they are 18 that they are of real worth. I think that central feeling, which is I'm OK, I am worth my place in the world, I'm worth the air that I breathe, whatever, you know, Joe Bloggs says about me, is so uh, protective. And I, I wish I could give that to every person who I saw.
1: And Cantifer says it's never too late to realize and accept your personal worth. But part of that process involves quieting your worst critic.
2: You have to recognize that your worst enemies are not out there. Your worst enemy is usually yourself. The, the sort of talk which you give to yourself is horrible. You know, when you say, oh, I'm such rubbish, I'm, I'm so, uh, weak, I'm so pathetic, you know, why can't I do what this other person can do? You know, if you found somebody talking like that to somebody uh-huh. else, particularly somebody else who was in, in a, a state of depression, you would stop them and you'd say, stop doing that. What you're doing is unreasonable and dreadful right. and, and really horrible. So if it's not okay to do it to other people, why is it okay to do it to yourself? But is
1: that us saying it to ourselves, doctor, or is that the depression?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. In the, in the pits of depression, their negative thoughts about themselves and the world and the future were just so black as to be impenetrable. But even when well, now, I accept this isn't the case for absolutely everybody, but it is those folks who put themselves at the back of the queue, both in terms of privilege and in terms of self-worth. Those are the people who I'm the most interested in because, you know, that can change, but you really have to change it. You know, you have to work on changing that. And while you are not more important than the next person, you are as important as them. Um, And treating yourself with the, uh, the same kindness and respect that you would offer to others, I think, is very much a key.
1: And that goes for how we care for ourselves when ill, too. We try to get others to understand that depression's as real as any other physical illness. But when it strikes, many of us seem to ignore that fact.
2: You know, don't try to force your way out of a major episode. You can't. It's impossible. You know, it's like trying to force your way out of double pneumonia in the you know, early stages. There really isn't an awful lot that you can do other than just recognize this is not your fault and, and, you know, take the medical treatment and start to get a little bit better, lighten up on yourself a little bit.
1: Dr. Cantifer says accepting the symptoms of depression, the same way you would accept the changes in your breathing with pneumonia, will ultimately help you recover faster and more fully. So rather than pushing yourself to exhaustion, pretending you are not in depression's
2: dark grip, you say, I'm going to listen to my body, I'm going to do a little bit, and I'm then just going to take it very, very gradually. You know, I use the metaphor of a stress fracture of the leg, which I think is a fairly good metaphor because that tends to happen to people who try too hard at their athletics. So... When can you start exercising again? Well, after a few weeks, you know. Um, When do you stop exercising? Well, when it starts hurting. If you don't carry on through the pain, otherwise you'll refracture your leg. It's the same with the limbic system. If you carry on through the pain, you'll refracture your limbic system, and you'll get another episode, or you just won't get better from the episode you've got. And
1: by taking that approach, Cantifer says we can reduce or even avoid
2: future episodes. Um, the longer you're well, the more robust the fuse gets. But it will never be so robust that you can do anything. You have to learn what your limits are, and the, that's the trouble. That the vast majority of people I see with major, uh, with current major depression never change anything. They just keep going back, never asking themselves what they want and what all of this is for, and where the balance is in their lives.
1: Cantifer says the trick is to learn to work just below your peak capacity in a place that's sustainable.
2: It, it is absolutely sustainable. And actually, you know, that way you get the greatest efficiency.
1: So to summarize his message and his book in just a few
2: sentences. Pace yourself, be consistent, treat yourself not better than anybody else, but the same as other people. Make some choices in your life based on not just on other people's expectations, but what you want to. It, it is important. It's more than okay. It is crucial. It makes perfect sense.
0: Wow, Terry. Look at the way you run your life. Hmm. It's, it's, it, this one
1: impacted me in a very gentle way, but I think a fairly profound way where I found myself one of his tests as he calls it the vacuum actually he calls it the hoover in the middle of the room test and he said when you're really in depression and you you know decide you still have to clean up you know you start to vacuum and when you find yourself like that stress fracture you know starting to get really tired he said so many of us just push through and do the whole darn house and then we're exhausted and maybe not don't feel well for a couple of days he said let it sit do something else, take a break, you know, read whatever you do to, to, to replenish yourself. And then when you feel up to it, you know, vacuum a little more, but don't you don't always have to push. You would pick that example. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I told him I'm looking at a vacuum in the middle of my room, but I'm not depressed. <laughs> okay, so I'm not
0: a great housekeeper and Bridget is. There, we said it. <laughs> That's okay. Um... Yeah, and the idea to treat yourself with kindness and respect as you would anybody else.
1: Mm-hmm. We don't do that. How about those three questions, Bridget? What's it all for? What do I want? And what do I, where's the balance in my life? Are those questions you have asked yourself and can answer for yourself? Absolutely not. Yeah, I know me neither. Should be, should and be. I'll work on that.
0: When you're in the hold of a depression, mm-hmm. you know, I don't. Oh, I just am in such an unresourceful place Mm -hmm. when I'm there that I wouldn't have any idea. I don't know how to answer them now. That's what I was going to say, but
1: we're not in it now and neither one of us is, yeah, that's something to challenge. I'm going to start
0: with, look at the way that I run my life.
1: Yep. Yep. I agree. That was a good one. So thank you, Dr. Canifer. Those are good questions. And thank you for not calling us weak and for understanding that, you know, perhaps
0: there's a different spin on all this. So Terry... Is it not true that I wasn't asked to prom because I'm special?
1: (laughs) Oh, no, sweetie, you're special. You're so, you were too special to go to prom.
0: (laughs) I love you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely.